This is a recording of the Word of the Lord as a Metonym for Christ by Lauren Spendlove, published in Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint faith and scholarship, read by Lauren Spendlove. Abstract. The Word of the Lord and the Word of God are common expressions in the Bible. Frequently, these phrases refer to the written or spoken covenantal words of God to his people, as given through the prophets. However, exegetical study of these expressions has revealed that they also serve as metonyms or substitutions for the name of God himself. In this paper, I explore these metonymous usages of the word of the Lord and the word of God as stand-ins for Christ in the Bible and the Book of Mormon. Introduction The word of the Lord and the word of God are important terms in the Old and New Testaments. In the New Testament, the Apostle John introduces us to the idea that the Word of God is metonymous with Jesus Christ. In the opening chapter of the Gospel of John, we read, quote, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, end quote. In 1 John 5, 7, we are told, quote, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one, end quote. Also, in the introductory verses of the book of Revelation, we are given, quote, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him, to show his servants things which must shortly come to pass, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore testimony of the word of God, and of the testimony of Jesus Christ, and of all things that he saw. Again, in the book of Revelation, John recorded a vision that he beheld of Christ, the faithful and true, riding on a white horse. Quote, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. End quote. In this passage, not only does John identify the word of God with Christ, but he also declares the word of God to be Christ's name. The Apostle Peter appears to echo John's view, quote, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God, end quote. The only other location in the New Testament where we can encounter this idea of being born again is in the third chapter of John as Jesus taught Nicodemus. Jesus taught that being born again is to be born of the Spirit. Alma, the son of Alma, added that to be born again is to be, quote, born of God, changed from our carnal and fallen state to a state of righteousness, being redeemed of God becoming his sons and daughters, end quote. Combining Peter's and Alma's words, we learn that those who are born again accomplish this through the living and enduring word of God, words of Peter, even Jesus Christ becoming his sons and daughters, words of Alma. How did John and Peter come to identify Jesus Christ with the word of God? Was this a novel concept that developed during first century Christianity, or does it have its roots in ancient Israelite theology? In this paper, I discuss the origin, uses, and potential meaning of this phrase in the Hebrew Bible, the New Testament, and the Book of Mormon. Abraham's Vision of the Word of the Lord 
The initial appearance in the Bible of the English phrase, the word of God, occurs in the story of Abraham in Genesis 15.1. Quote, After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. End quote. We find closely associated wording three verses later, quote, And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, end quote. Regarding these initial verses from Genesis 15, Charles Gieschen wrote, quote, There is very early precedent for Yahweh's visible form in a theophany being identified as the word of Yahweh. After these things, the word of Yahweh came unto Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord Elohim, what will you give me, for I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a slave born in my house will be my heir. And behold, the word of Yahweh came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your own son will be your heir. The phenomenon described seems to begin with a vision, then progresses to a manifestation that comes to Abram in order to speak and lead him outside to see the stars. There is good reason to compare this theophany to those involving the angel of Yahweh in subsequent portions of the Old Testament. Thus, the word of Yahweh could be considered to be an angelomorphic figure, especially by later interpreters in the first century CE. End quote. Gieschen described the phrase, the word of the Lord came, as the appearance of an angelomorphic figure to Abraham, which he also identified as Yahweh's visible form. Adding support to Gieschen's interpretation, Richard Lammert wrote, quote, Gieschen notes that the word of Yahweh not only speaks to Abram, but also takes him outside. The word of Yahweh here is obviously more than a title for a verbal event. It is a title for a personal appearance of Yahweh. Abram accepts the statement made by the word of Yahweh as if it were Yahweh's own word. Abram believed Yahweh. Then the word of Yahweh identifies himself as Yahweh. At the conclusion of the pericope, Yahweh makes a covenant with Abram that same day. Since the only figure other than Abram, who has been introduced in the text so far, is the word of Yahweh, it is reasonable to conclude that the word of Yahweh is the same Yahweh who made a covenant with Abram. End quote. It is interesting to note that during this theophanic experience, Yahweh, as the word of Yahweh, covenanted with Abraham that he would multiply his seed, and Abraham assented to this covenantal promise by verbally expressing his Amen. Moshe Anbar wrote that rather than merely describing an auditory experience, these verses in Genesis 15 most likely depict a visual theophany to Abraham. Quote, Hayad devar Yahweh el Avram lemor, the word of the Lord came unto Abraham, saying, This opening formula is typical of the delivery of the word of God to the prophets. We possess an example which may indicate that the prophetic formula could refer to a revelation which was originally visual, end quote. Terence Fretheim wrote that personal encounters with the Word of God, as in Genesis 15, describe more than just a spoken revelation. They reveal the embodied and visible Word of God. Quote, 
In view of the importance of the theophany in any understanding of the Word of God, one can say that the Word of God so given is an embodied word. God assumes human form in order to speak a word in personal encounter. The word spoken is the focus for the appearance, but the fact that the word is commonly conveyed in personal encounter is a considerable significance. Visible words have a kind of import that merely spoken words do not. End quote. Samuel and the Word of the Lord As with Abraham, Gishan believes that the revelation to the young Samuel, who ministered before the Lord under Eli, was also a visible theophany. Quote, the visual aspect of the word of Yahweh as a theophany is also prominent in the Samuel call narrative. Consider these select portions. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to Yahweh under Eli, and the word of Yahweh was rare in those days. There was not frequent vision. And Yahweh called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know Yahweh, and the word of Yahweh had not yet been revealed to him. Yahweh came and stood forth, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Yahweh appeared again at Shiloh, for Yahweh revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of Yahweh. Although the angelomorphic appearance of God to a prophet, such as those to Moses in Exodus 3 and 33, is less prominent in prophetic literature, this earlier theophonic model appears to be the basis of the expression, the word of Yahweh came to the prophet, end quote. Given Gishan's observations of 1 Samuel 3, specific passages from that chapter deserve further emphasis. The word of Yahweh was rare, or literally precious in those days. There was not frequent vision, or literally there was no vision breaking forth. Yahweh called. Samuel did not yet know Yahweh. The word of Yahweh had not yet been revealed to him. Yahweh came and stood forth. Yahweh appeared again at Shiloh. And Yahweh revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of Yahweh. Taken together, these passages seem to confirm that Yahweh not only spoke to, but also physically showed himself to Samuel. As such, it was reasonable for Gishan to arrive at the conclusion that Yahweh, as the word of Yahweh, showed himself to the prophet Samuel. Lammert agrees with this assessment. Quote, A theophany of God as the word of Yahweh is primarily associated with the prophets of Israel. 1 Samuel 3.1 supports this conclusion. The boy Samuel ministered before Yahweh under Eli. In those days, the word of Yahweh was rare. There were not many visions. Because the author of the text probably wrote in a later period when there were more frequent theophanies of God, he could say that in those days, as compared to the writer's day, the word of Yahweh was rare. The explicit connection between the word of Yahweh and visions appears to underscore that the word of Yahweh is not simply a spoken or written word of God, but a manifestation of God that appears in a vision. If one understands the word of Yahweh as a theophany, one would more readily say that the word of Yahweh himself appears in the vision, announcing the word of prophecy. This can be demonstrated from the text. The following text of Samuel makes no sharp distinction between the word of Yahweh and Yahweh. To use Grether's terminology, the two terms are used promiscuously. 
Thus, the impression is underscored that the two are the same, end quote. Lamert, quoting Gishan, added that, quote, If there is no distinction between the word of Yahweh and Yahweh, then the two are metonymous, and the word of Yahweh is a theophany, end quote. If we accept these conclusions, then it would be more appropriate to express the phrase the word of Yahweh in English with a capital W, since it represents a proper noun. Lamert is also careful to clarify that although the word of Yahweh can be identified as being metonymous with Yahweh, not all occurrences of the phrase in the Bible can carry that meaning. Quote, the analysis of selected passages regarding the word of Yahweh shows that they readily support the understanding of the word as a theophany, a visible manifestation of Yahweh. Yahweh himself appears to the patriarchs and prophets, making known his revelatory word to them. This does not mean that all passages with the word of Yahweh can be so understood. Some, undisputably, relate to the covenantal word of God in the commandments, or to other words. But this analysis allows us to conclude that several occurrences of the word of Yahweh in biblical text should be considered theophanies if the text indicates that the word of Yahweh came and spoke with an individual or group, end quote. In the above passage, Lambert makes a distinction between the word of Yahweh with a capital W as the visible manifestation of Yahweh and the word of Yahweh with a lowercase w as the covenantal word of God in the commandments. In 1 Samuel 3.7, we are told that, quote, Samuel did not yet know the Lord, neither was the word of the Lord yet revealed unto him, end quote. Later, in verse 27, we read, quote, And the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. End quote. The verbs yigale in verse 7 and nigla in verse 21, both translated as revealed in the KJV, are derived from the root gimil lamid he, or glh, and carry the meaning of, quote, letting oneself be seen, to become visible, to reveal oneself, end quote. In verse 7, we are told that prior to Samuel's nighttime experience, the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Another way of phrasing this could be that the word of the Lord had not yet let himself be seen by Samuel. However, in verse 21, we find that things have changed. The Lord did reveal himself or let himself be seen by Samuel by the word of the Lord. These two verses help establish that the word of Yahweh is metonymous with Yahweh, at least in these passages. In addition, it is possible that the author of 1 Samuel inserted wordplay into the story of Samuel to visually and audibly demonstrate that things were about to change with his call as a prophet. No longer would the word of the Lord be rare. Yahweh was about to turn the current state of affairs on its head. In 1 Samuel 3.1, we are told that the word of the Lord was rare. In Hebrew, this phrase is expressed as hayayakad, signaling a change in the status quo. In verse 4, we read that the Lord called Samuel. The Hebrew for the Lord called is yikra Yahweh. Hayayakad and Yigra Yahweh are closely related visual and auditory matches, but with inverted word order. 
It has long been held that the name Yahweh is derived from the verb to be, of which Hayah represents the third person masculine singular perfect tense. So in this passage, Hayah could be seen as metonymous with Yahweh. And although divergent in meaning, Yakad and Yikra are nearly identical to each other both visually and audibly. So, when the author of 1 Samuel inverted the word order of the two phrases, it could have been a visual and audible representation of the reversal that was about to occur with Samuel's call. Visions of the Lord would no longer be rare. Rather, they would become frequent after Yahweh called Samuel. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. As with the story of Abraham in Genesis 15, the book of Jonah starts with a possible theophany. Quote, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, end quote. Regarding this passage, Philip Carey wrote, quote, Jonah, like father Abraham and all Israel, is chosen by God for the blessing of all the families of the earth. But he is a chosen one who flees his election and the mission that comes with it, as chosen ones are wont to do in the Bible. The only absolute exception is the chosen one whose mission, it turns out, is to identify with Jonah. Jesus Christ, the chosen one who never for a moment turns in the opposite direction from where God sends him, has the mission of identifying with Jonah, the chosen one who flees his mission, and thereby redeeming all those who flee and exile themselves from the presence of God. To be the uniquely obedient chosen one, Jesus must stand in the place of the prophet Jonah, the disobedient fool, the elect one who tries his best to refuse the task of the elect but ultimately fails. One must suspect that Jonah ultimately fails to escape his election because the word of the Lord that comes to him is none other than the word that ultimately takes his place. Taking upon himself the sin of Jonah, his flight and disobedience, and his three days in the abyss, end quote. Following Jonah's initial disobedience, which led to the three days and three nights in the whale's belly, we are told that the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, and he was vomited onto dry ground. The ever-patient word of the Lord instructed him again to, quote, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I shall bid thee, end quote. This time Jonah was obedient, and he arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Twice in this short story we are told that the word of the Lord came and instructed Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah opens with these words, quote, The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests that were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came, end quote. As with Abraham, Samuel, and Jonah, this opening line most likely represents both an audible and visual encounter with Yahweh. Referencing these opening verses from Jeremiah 1, Gishan observed, quote, here, the word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah and spoke in the first person as Yahweh. After Jeremiah's objection and Yahweh's verbal reassurance, Jeremiah relates that then Yahweh put forth his hand and touched my mouth. What was the appearance of the word of Yahweh who was Yahweh, if he could be described as putting forth his hand to touch Jeremiah's mouth? Is this not more than anthropomorphism? 
Here, word of Yahweh is most likely a figure in continuity with angelomorphic traditions that depict God appearing in the form of a man to a human. End quote. Again, Lammert agrees with Gishan's conclusion. Quote, we can conclude that Jeremiah has recorded a theophany. The word of Yahweh that came to him was a visible manifestation of Yahweh that he could see and still live. End quote. It is interesting to note that the word of Yahweh spoke to Jeremiah personally in the first person. Quote, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee, and before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. End quote. Throughout the entire first chapter of Jeremiah, the author alternates between using the word of the Lord and the Lord, as if the two terms were altogether interchangeable. See Table 1. Table 1 presents several verses in this chapter where the word of the Lord, the Lord God, and the Lord are all used interchangeably. Fretheim adds a valuable contribution to the idea of the embodied word of God that appeared to Jeremiah. Prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel experienced a physical encounter with the word of God, Christ, where he placed the word of God in them. The prophets, in turn, became the embodied word of God who preached the word, prophecy, and the word, Messiah, to God's people. Quote, the idea of the embodied word becomes particularly apparent in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. In Jeremiah 1.9, the word of God is placed by God's hand directly into Jeremiah's mouth. The word is conveyed into his very being without having been spoken. This is graphically portrayed in Ezekiel 3, 1 through 3. The prophet ingests the word of God. The word of God is thereby enfleshed in the very person of the prophet. It is not only what the prophet speaks, but who he is that now constitute the word of God. The prophet conveys the word in a way that no simple speaking or writing can. The people now not only hear the word of God from the prophet, they see the word enfleshed in their midst. The word of God is not a disembodied word. It is a personal word spoken in personal encounter, end quote. As Fretheim explained, whether the word of God is delivered by the word of God himself, that is, the word of God with a capital W, to his prophet, or by the prophet to the people, the word that is delivered is almost always embodied. John Mackenzie wrote of a subtle difference between the phrases, the word of Yahweh came to, and Yahweh said to. Quote, the most frequent phrase to describe the prophetic experience is, the word of Yahweh came to X. This is somewhat nuanced from what appears to be the synonymous expression, Yahweh said to X. When the word of Yahweh comes, the background of the word as a dynamic entity with its own distinct reality comes into view. The word is a something which the prophet receives. As a something, it is an expansion of a living personality, who in this case is Yahweh himself. And it has the power which only that uniquely powerful personality can give it. Its first effect is upon the prophet himself. When Yahweh puts his hand to the mouth of Jeremiah, he puts his word in the mouth of the prophet. It is the conscious possession of the word which distinguishes the true prophet from the false, and revelation from human invention. End quote. Mackenzie connected the phrase, the word of Yahweh came to X, with, quote, something which the prophet receives, 
As a something, it is an expansion of a living personality, who in this case is Yahweh himself, end quote. This something that comes to the prophets, as Mackenzie describes it, in the form of the word of the Lord, often engages many or all of the prophets' physical senses, as we learn from Jeremiah's theophany. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. Ezekiel also had a sensory encounter with the word of Yahweh similar to Jeremiah's. As in the story of the prophet Samuel, the book of Ezekiel begins with the account of a priest, Ezekiel, who saw visions of God. As with Samuel, Jonah, and Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel and delivered words to him that he was instructed to pass along to the people. Quote, in my thirteenth year, in the fourth month of the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kebar River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kebar River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was on him. Then he said to me, Son of man, eat this scroll I am giving you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it, and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. He then said to me, Son of man, go now to the people of Israel and speak my words to them. End quote. Ezekiel, having been visited in vision by the word of God, Yahweh, was given the word of God, the word of prophecy, in the form of a scroll to eat until his stomach was full. Having eaten, Ezekiel became the embodied word of God, a personal messenger of the Lord, who was then charged to preach the word to the people of Israel. Summary In the opening paragraphs of this paper, I asked how John and Peter had come to understand and teach that Jesus was metonymous with the word of God. I asked whether this was a newly minted first century Christian concept or if it had its roots in ancient Israelite theology. Following our study of the theophanies experienced by Abraham, Samuel, Jonah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, Lammert provides an excellent answer to these introductory questions. Quote, When one grasps the word of Yahweh as a theophonic expression, it is not surprising to find the word as a hypostasis or theophany in the literature of the Second Temple period, such as the Wisdom of Solomon 1815, or in the New Testament, passages in which the word is a reference to Jesus Christ, such as John 1.1 and 14. When one views the word of Yahweh as a theophany in the Old Testament, its explicit use as such in the Second Temple period and in the New Testament is understood not as a development of its use in the Hebrew Scriptures, but as a continuation. There is no lack of continuity of theology and language between the Old Testament and the New Testament. End quote. The Word of the Lord in the Book of Mormon there are several recorded theophanies in the Book of Mormon, among which are visions experienced by Lehi, Nephi, Alma, the son of Alma, the sons of Mosiah, and the brother of Jared, to name only a few. In addition to these theophonic experiences, there are other less obvious occurrences of divine appearances in the Book of Mormon that follow the pattern that we have identified in the Bible involving the metonymous phrases, the word of the Lord and the word of God. The word of God came to Jacob. After the death of Nephi, Jacob felt constrained to preach repentance to the Nephite people. Following the pattern outlined with the biblical prophets, the word of God came to Jacob and delivered a message that he was instructed to declare to the people. Quote, 
Wherefore, I must tell you the truth according to the plainness of the word of God. For behold, as I inquired of the Lord, thus came the word unto me, saying, Jacob, get thou up into the temple on the morrow, and declare the word which I shall give unto thee unto this people. End quote. Several factors in this passage mediate in favor of interpreting the word of God in this passage as a metonym for Christ. First, Jacob's plainness of the word of God parallels Nephi's earlier teaching about the plainness which is in the Lamb of God. If we connect these two ideas, then Jacob's word of God can be considered metonymous with Nephi's Lamb of God. Second, after Jacob's mention of the word of God, he tells us that he inquired of the Lord and that the word came to him. By context, it seems apparent that the word in this passage is shorthand for the word of God. As demonstrated earlier, the phrase, the word of the Lord, the word of God came to X, can be understood as metonymous with an embodied manifestation of God. Jacob continued, quote, But the word of God burdens me because of your grosser crimes. For behold, thus saith the Lord, this people begin to wax in iniquity. They understand not the scriptures, for they seek to excuse themselves in committing whoredoms because of the things which are written concerning David and Solomon his son. Behold, David and Solomon truly had many wives and concubines, which things was abominable before me, saith the Lord. Wherefore, thus saith the Lord, I have led this people forth out of the land of Jerusalem by the power of mine arm that I might raise up unto me a righteous branch from the fruit of the loins of Joseph. Wherefore, I, the Lord God, will not suffer that this people shall do like unto them of old. Wherefore, my brethren, hear me, and hearken to the word of the Lord. For there shall not any man among you have, save it be one wife, and concubines he shall have none. For I, the Lord God, delight in the chastity of women, and whoredoms are an abomination before me. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, end quote. Taken together with the earlier passage from Jacob, several elements in this section also argue in favor of the word of the Lord as a metonym for Christ. First, the above passage begins with a simple alternate parallelism that appears to equate the word of God with the Lord. Line A, but the word of God burdens me. Line B, because of your grosser crimes. A prime, for behold, thus saith the Lord, be prime, this people begin to wax in iniquity. Second, Jacob employs multiple biblical appellations for God in this passage. The Lord four times, the Lord God twice, mine arm once, the word of God once, the word of the Lord once, and the Lord of hosts once. Each appellation can be replaced with the word Christ without changing the meaning of the passage. This repetition of the various names of God helps establish Jacob's authority when speaking to the people and shows that the words that Jacob is speaking did not originate with him. They are a commandment from the Lord. By contrast, in an earlier verse from the same chapter, Jacob used the phrase, the word of the Lord, as a clear reference to the words of the Lord. Quote, For behold, as yet ye have been obedient unto the word of the Lord, which I have given unto you. End quote. The word of the Lord came to Alma. In Alma 43, we are told that the Nephites met the armies of the Lamanites in the borders of Jershon. However, the Nephites were better prepared for the battle, so the Lamanites disengaged and fled into the wilderness. Not knowing where the Lamanites were headed, 
Moroni sent spies to follow them, and he, quote, knowing of the prophecies of Alma, sent certain men unto him, desiring him that he should inquire of the Lord, whither the armies of the Nephites should go to defend themselves against the Lamanites, end quote. Following the pattern that we have already observed, quote, the word of the Lord came unto Alma, and Alma informed the messengers of Moroni, and those messengers went and delivered the message unto Moroni, end quote. As we have seen with the examples in the Bible, the word of the Lord first came to Alma and delivered the information that he desired. As the embodied mortal word of the Lord, Alma then informed the messengers, and they delivered the message unto Moroni. The word of the Lord came to Ether. The following passage from the book of Ether also conforms to the pattern outlined in the Bible. The word of the Lord came to Ether, and Ether was told to prophesy to Coriantumr that the Lord would spare the people if they would repent. Quote, and in the second year, the word of the Lord came to Ether, that he should go and prophesy unto Coriantumr that if he would repent, and all his household, the Lord would give unto him the kingdom and spare the people. End quote. As with the other examples from the Bible and the Book of Mormon, the word of the Lord came to Ether possibly represents a visible appearance of the Lord to the prophet. The word of the Lord came to Mormon. Upon learning that there were disputations among the members of the church concerning the baptism of children, Mormon wrote a letter to Moroni to settle this doctrinal matter. Quote, For immediately after I had learned these things of you, I inquired of the Lord concerning the matter, and the word of the Lord came to me by the power of the Holy Ghost, saying, Listen to the words of Christ your Redeemer, your Lord and your God. Behold, I came into the world not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The whole need no physician, but they that are sick. Wherefore, little children are whole, for they are not capable of committing sin. Wherefore, the curse of Adam is taken away from them in me, that it hath no power over them, and the law of circumcision is done away in me. And after this manner did the Holy Ghost manifest the word of God unto me. Wherefore, my beloved son, I know that it is solemn mockery before God that ye should baptize little children. End quote. Similar to the passage in Jacob, Mormon used multiple biblical names for God to help establish his authority. The Lord once, the word of the Lord once, Christ once, your Redeemer once, your Lord once, your God once, the word of God once, and God once. Two other factors also merit mention in these verses. First, Mormon told us that after he had inquired of the Lord, that the word of the Lord came to me by the power of the Holy Ghost, and that after this manner did the Holy Ghost manifest the word of God unto me. In both cases, Mormon is clear to point out that the revelatory experience was facilitated by the Holy Ghost, whose work is to bear record of Christ. In addition, the phrases came to me and did manifest unto me, both seem to indicate a visual appearance of the word to Mormon. Second, the word of the Lord spoke to Mormon and said, Listen to the words of Christ. It is important to point out that the word of the Lord in the singular spoke to Mormon and instructed him to listen to the words of Christ in the plural. The same word of the Lord continued by saying, quote, I came into the world not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 
Wherefore the curse of Adam is taken away from them in me, that it hath no power over them, and the law of circumcision is done away in me. End quote. The word of the Lord spoke the words of Christ to Mormon in the first person, as if he were Christ. Taken together, these points can lead us to understand that Mormon's experience was much like those of Abraham, Samuel, Jonah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. The Lord, the embodied word of the Lord, appeared to Mormon and spoke the words of Christ to him. Lehi was obedient to the word of the Lord. In addition to the phrase, the word of the Lord came to X, there are other ways in which the expressions, the word of the Lord and the word of God, can be understood as being metonymous with Christ. In the opening chapters of the Book of Mormon, we learn that Lehi had been instructed to take his family and depart out of the land of Jerusalem. Quote, For behold, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto my father, yea, even in a dream, and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Lehi, because of the things which thou hast done, and because thou hast been faithful, and declared unto this people the things which I commanded thee, behold, they seek to take away thy life. And it came to pass that the Lord commanded my father, even in a dream, that he should take his family and depart into the wilderness. And it came to pass that he was obedient unto the word of the Lord, wherefore he did as the Lord commanded him. End quote. Nephi tells us that the Lord spoke to Lehi and commanded him in a dream that his family was to depart into the wilderness. The final line of this passage is presented as a simple alternate parallelism, allowing us to observe that the word of the Lord is most likely metonymous with the Lord in these verses. Line A, and it came to pass that he was obedient. Line B, unto the word of the Lord. A prime, wherefore he did, B prime, as the Lord commanded him. Lammert commented, quote, Since the word plays a much more independent role in ancient times than we can feel, then we should be open as faithful interpreters to the possibility that the word of Yahweh, the word of the Lord, is a title for Yahweh's visible appearance of form. We must take into account that it is more difficult for us moderns than for the ancient Israelites to see a given account as a theophany. End quote. The Word of God and the Rod of Iron Following Nephi's vision of the Tree of Life, he attempted to explain the meaning of the symbols that he saw in vision to his brothers. One of those symbols was the Rod of Iron. Quote, and I said unto them that it, the Rod of Iron, was the Word of God. And whoso would hearken unto the word of God, and would hold fast unto it, they would never perish. Neither could the temptations and the fiery darts of the adversary overpower them unto blindness, to lead them away to destruction. Wherefore I, Nephi, did exhort them to give heed unto the word of the Lord. Yea, I did exhort them with all the energies of my soul, and with all the faculty which I possessed, that they would give heed to the word of God, and remember to keep his commandments always in all things. End quote. Although the phrase, the word of God, in this passage is traditionally interpreted as the written or spoken word which emanates from God, it is also possible that Nephi intended this as a reference to Christ himself. Understood this way, we are to hearken unto Christ, hear and obey him, hold fast to him, be strong in him, 
Give heed to him, listen and pay attention to him, and remember to keep his commandments always in all things. The Word of God and the Words of the Book Isaiah prophesied of the blindness and spiritual illiteracy of Jerusalem, or Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Quote, For the Lord has poured over you a spirit of deep sleep. He has shut your eyes, the prophets, and he has covered your heads, the seers. The entire vision will be to you like the words of a sealed book, which when they give it to the one who is literate, saying, Please read this, he will say, I cannot, for it is sealed. End quote. Nephi specifically chose to base his own prophecy on this chapter of Isaiah, see 2 Nephi 25.4. In his prophecy that encompasses 2 Nephi 25-27, through 27, Nephi expertly incorporated his own ideas into the prophecy of Isaiah to create a midrashic interpretation of the prophet's words. A portion of Nephi's prophecy included the following, quote, Wherefore, the Lord God will proceed to bring forth the words of the book. And in the mouth of as many witnesses as seemeth him good, he will establish his word. And woe be unto him that rejecteth the word of God. Below I have displayed this passage as a simple chiasm, outlining only the key elements of the verse. Line A, the Lord God. Line B, bring forth the words of the book. B prime, establish his word. A prime, the word of God. As shown in the chiasm, the Lord God can be seen as parallel with the Word of God. Based on this, it is possible that Nephi was prophesying that the Lord God, or the Word of God, would bring forth and establish his Word, the words of the book, in the last days. Nephi also added a caution, quote, Woe be unto him that rejecteth the Word of God, end quote. Nephi used the word reject on multiple occasions, see Table 2. From the table, it is clear that rejection of the word of God could be a reference to rejection of the spoken or written word of God or to Christ himself. The Sons of Mosiah and the Word of God The section heading that introduces chapters 17 to 26 of the Book of Alma explains why the Sons of Mosiah were willing to reject their rights to the governance of the Nephite kingdom. Quote, an account of the sons of Mosiah who rejected their rights to the kingdom for the word of God and went up to the land of Nephi to preach to the Lamanites their sufferings and deliverance according to the record of Alma. End quote. I find it much easier to believe that the sons of Mosiah had rejected their rights to the kingdom if we interpret the word of God in this passage heading as a metonym for Christ rather than as the decrees of God or his divine pronouncements. Rejecting power, wealth, and the trappings of the world for Christ is a powerfully compelling reason to abandon their rights to govern the people. Like Lamoni's father, what motivated the sons of Mosiah to forsake their rights to the kingdom must have been something truly significant. Quote, and it came to pass that after Aaron had expounded these things unto him, the king said, What shall I do that I may have this eternal life of which thou hast spoken? Yea, what shall I do that I may be born of God, having this wicked spirit rooted out of my breast, and receive his spirit, that I may be filled with joy, that I may not be cast off at the last day? Behold, said he, I will give up all that I possess, yea, I will forsake my kingdom, that I may receive this great joy. End quote. 
Following these words, Lamoni's father, the king of the Lamanites, did prostrate himself upon the earth before the Lord and cried mightily, saying, quote, O God, Aaron hath told me that there is a God, and if there is a God, and if thou art God, wilt thou make thyself known unto me, and I will give away all my sins to know thee, and that I may be raised from the dead and be saved at the last day, end quote. The old king's desire to know God is an overwhelmingly powerful reason to be willing to forsake his kingdom. Likewise, I find it much more believable that the sons of Mosiah gave up their kingdom for Christ, the word of God with a capital W. Then for an abstract belief in religious doctrines, principles, or prophecies, the word of God with a lowercase w, no matter how important this word might have been to them. Nephi explained that the principal reason for preaching, prophesying, and writing the Word of God was to lead souls to Christ, the Word of God. Quote, And we talk of Christ, we rejoice in Christ, we preach of Christ, we prophesy of Christ, and we write according to our prophecies that our children may know to what source they may look for a remission of their sins. End quote. In other words, a primary role of the written and spoken Word of God is to lead us to Christ, the living Word of God. Correspondingly, Mormon wrote that the sons of Mosiah had, quote, searched the scriptures diligently that they might know the Word of God, end quote. While this could be a reference to the doctrines and principles of the gospel, it is more compelling to believe that the reason why the sons of Mosiah had searched the scriptures diligently was to know Christ, the Word of God. Alma taught his son Shiblon that the Word of God helps teach us that, quote, There is no other way or means whereby man can be saved, only in and through Christ, who is the Word of truth and righteousness, end quote. We will compare the word unto a seed. In his preaching to the Zoramites, Alma delivered a powerful allegorical sermon that involved the word of God, a seed, and the tree of life. Quote, Therefore, blessed are they who humble themselves without being compelled to be humble, or rather, in other words, blessed is he that believeth in the word of God, and is baptized without stubbornness of heart. Yea, without being brought to know the word, or even compelled to know before they will believe. And now, behold, I say unto you, I would that ye should remember that God is merciful unto all who believe on his name. Therefore he desireth in the first place that ye should believe, yea, even on his word. Now as I said concerning faith, that it was not a perfect knowledge, even so it is with my words. Ye cannot know of their surety at first, unto perfection, any more than faith is a perfect knowledge. But behold, if ye will awake and arouse your faculties to an experiment upon my words, and exercise a particle of faith, yea, even if ye can no more than desire to believe, let this desire work in you, even until ye believe in a manner that ye can give place for a portion of my words. Now we will compare the word unto a seed. And now behold, is your knowledge perfect? Yea, your knowledge is perfect in that thing, and your faith is dormant, and this because you know. For ye know that the word hath swelled your souls, and ye also know that it hath sprouted up, that your understanding doth begin to be enlightened, and your mind doth begin to expand. And thus, if ye will not nourish the word, looking forward with an eye of faith to the fruit thereof, ye can never pluck of the fruit of the tree of life. 
But if ye will nourish the word, yea, nourish the tree as it beginneth to grow, by your own faith, with great diligence and with patience, looking forward to the fruit thereof, it shall take root, and behold, it shall be a tree springing up unto eternal life. And because of your diligence and your faith and your patience with the word and nourishing it, that it may take root in you, behold, by and by ye shall pluck the fruit thereof, which is most precious, which is sweet above all that is sweet, and which is white above all that is white, yea, and pure above all that is pure, and ye shall feast upon this fruit, even until ye are filled, that ye hunger not, neither shall ye thirst. Now after Alma had spoken these words, they sent forth unto him, desiring to know whether they should believe in one God, that they might obtain this fruit of which he had spoken, or how they should plant the seed or the word which he had spoken which he said must be planted in their hearts, or in what manner they should begin to exercise their faith. End quote. In this allegory, Alma taught that we must believe in the word of God, believe on his name, and believe on his word, all references or possible references to Christ. In addition, Alma compared the word of God to a seed that we are instructed to plant in our hearts, If we nourish the seed or the word, we are told that it will take root and grow to become a tree springing up unto everlasting life, from which we may pluck the fruit thereof, which is most precious, which is sweet above all that is sweet, and which is white above all that is white, yea, and pure above all that is pure, a clear allusion to Lehi's vision of the tree of life. Alma added that those who plant the seed and nourish it shall feast upon the fruit, even until ye are filled, that ye hunger not, neither shall ye thirst. In a parallel teaching, Jesus instructed, quote, He that eateth this bread eateth of my body to his soul, and he that drinketh of this wine drinketh of my blood to his soul, and his soul shall never hunger nor thirst, but shall be filled, end quote. In other words, eating the fruit of the tree of life is analogous to partaking of the sacramental emblems of Christ's body and blood. This fruit, including the tree that bears it, which grows from the seed or word that we plant in our hearts, can be understood as allegorical representations of Christ. Throughout Christian history, theologians have connected Christ not only with the fruit, but with the tree of life itself. So, in Alma's allegory, the seed can be understood as represented the spoken or written word of God, but it perhaps more properly represents the living word of God that we must plant in our hearts. The power of the word of God. Mormon informs us that nearly 200 years following the visitation of Christ to the Nephites, after apostasy had firmly set in among them, false churches persecuted the disciples of Christ. Quote, Therefore, they did exercise power and authority over the disciples of Jesus who did tarry with them, and they did cast them into prison. But by the power of the word of God which was in them, the prisons were rent in twain, and they went forth doing mighty miracles among them. End quote. Mormon recounted a similar story about Nephi, the son of Helaman. Quote, But behold, the power of God was with him, and they could not take him to cast him into prison, for he was taken by the Spirit and conveyed away out of the midst of them. The disciples of Jesus were freed from their prisons by the power of the word of God which was in them, while Nephi's enemies were unable to cast him into prison because the power of God was with him. 
These two stories appear to equate the word of God with God himself. Just as the power of the word of God was in the disciples, that same power, the power of God, was with Nephi. Similarly, after their escape from the hands of King Noah and his people, Alma wanted his flock of believers to know that it was God who had delivered them. Quote, and now as ye have been delivered by the power of God out of these bonds, end quote. Later, preaching to the Nephites in the land of Zarahemla, Alma the son of Alma taught that after they were delivered out of the hands of the people of King Noah, Alma's flock again came into bondage. Quote, and behold, after that they were brought into bondage by the hands of the Lamanites in the wilderness. Yea, I say unto you that they were in captivity, and again the Lord did deliver them out of bondage by the power of his word. And we were brought into this land, and here we began to establish the church of God throughout this land also. End quote. The second period of captivity ended when the Lord did deliver them out of bondage by the power of his word. Again, as with the account of the disciples of Christ and Nephi, this dual usage of the power of God and the power of his word lend credence to the idea that the word of God is none other than Christ. Conclusion The word of the Lord and the word of God are two biblical phrases that have been shown to be stand-ins for God himself, and specifically as metonymic substitutions for Christ. These phrases are often used when the Bible recounts theophonic experiences of prophets. Lammert wrote, quote, Most interpreters of the New Testament affirm that there are at least a few texts where the Word is a personal being, the Son of God. The most widely recognized of these texts, the Prologue of John, identifies the Eternal Son as the Word who created things and became flesh, as Jesus the Incarnate Son. Many interpreters of the Old Testament, however, understand a very similar expression in the Old Testament, the word of Yahweh, Devar Yahweh, as signifying merely a verbal word spoken by God and heard by the prophet to whom the word of Yahweh came. The evident linguistic connection between the two terms is not readily extended to a theological connection. A close exegetical consideration shows, however, that the connection between the two is also theological. The word of Yahweh is a theophany in several Old Testament texts. End quote. Likewise, in the Book of Mormon, we encounter several events and stories in which the word of the Lord or the word of God can be profitably interpreted as direct references to Christ. Understanding these phrases as metonyms for the Son of God, the word of truth and righteousness, helps us more fully comprehend and accept that the Book of Mormon is truly another testament of Christ. This has been a recording of The Word of the Lord is a Metonym for Christ by Lauren Spendlove, published in Interpreter, a Journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship, Volume 29, 2021, read by Lauren Spendlove. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged. The journal and its website are accredited and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles can be found at journal.interpreterfoundation.org. More information about the Interpreter Foundation, along with a wide array of additional resources, can be found at interpreterfoundation.org.